Well, good evening. Welcome to our fifth study in the book of Revelation. My name's Chris. I'm your tour guide through this amazing book. And uh, before we get going, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we love you. We thank you right now for your word. God, we thank you even now as we come together around this study. Um, Lord, we know that our country is hurting, that our world is hurting. Holy Spirit, we thank you. You are the comforter. We pray that you will uh, go forth and just bring comfort to people. Uh, God, we pray, God, for a breakthrough in our country. We pray for a turnaround. We pray, Father, that all these events will begin to just draw us to you and help us to turn our hearts and our minds totally to you. We ask you to take this study now and use it for your glory. Let it minister life and peace to all who are watching. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, like I said, we are now starting our fifth study in the book of Revelation. And as we've discussed multiple times, you could divide Revelation up really into just three sections. Section one, the things that John saw. Section two, the things that are. And section three, the things that will be hereafter, future tense. And we have already uh, completed section one, the things which John has seen. And that was the vision of the glorified Christ. And what an awesome vision it was. But now tonight, we're going to continue to look at section two, which is the church age. This section is perhaps the most important for you and me because we live in the time of the church age, also known as the age of grace. And so this section has very specific information that's relevant to how you and I follow Christ. You know, we don't want to lose sight of the fact that the church age is a very unique period of history. The church age is a time unlike any that has ever been or will ever be on planet Earth. And we kind of take that for granted because we're living in it, right? But these seven letters from Christ to these seven churches are both very enlightening and very sobering for you and I because it's essentially Jesus's report card, Christ's evaluation, if you will, on how they're doing. It tells them the things that they're doing well, and it also tells them where they might be missing it. Not where they might be, where they are missing it, because if Jesus says they're missing it, they're missing it, right? And it tells them the benefits of making changes and tells them, the ramifications of not making changes as well. So very potent letters. Now, if you remember, we talked about each one of these letters having at least three levels of application. All that means is that there are three groups of people that these letters apply to. The first group of people it applied to were the seven actual churches that they were addressed to. During New Testament times in Turkey, there were these seven real churches. And Jesus' message was directed to situations specific to their local congregations. These were real situations that Jesus was addressing. That's why it's called the local application. The second level is the universal level of application. This means that the information Jesus has given is relevant not only to those local churches, but also to all churches throughout all ages. Somebody could read this letter 
A church could read this letter in the year 220 A.D. They could read it in the year 1020. And they could also read it here in 2020. And it would still be applicable to each church. In other words, there's never been a time when these letters were not relevant. They've always been important. And there's never been a church to whom these letters would not apply. That's why it's called the universal level of application. And the third level is where the rubber meets the road. This is the personal application. And the question we need to ask at this point is, how does this apply to me personally? You hear Jesus say seven times, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And that means that there is information here that is directly for us. You see, we as human beings have a remarkable ability to deceive ourselves in how we're doing spiritually. And that's one of the reasons why God's word is so good for us. Not only does it comfort us and build us up, but it also confronts us and challenges us in the areas we need to make changes. That's always for our good and it's always for his glory. And so we want to be really sensitive to what the Spirit is saying to us. We want to hear the good things, the things that he's pleased with us about, but we also want to hear where we're missing it so we can align our lives with what pleases him. That's the end game, right? That's what it's all about. And so these letters are a treasure when it comes to our spiritual growth. Okay, so let's take a look now at our roadmap for our lesson. Uh, tonight. It's going to be really basic. Tonight we're going to be covering two of the seven churches. We started Ephesus last week, but we didn't delve too deep. We'll be doing that tonight. And then the second part of our study will focus on the church at Smyrna, the persecuted church. And that's our roadmap. We're basically going to um, look at the church. We're going to look at the seven elements that we talked about last week on each church. And then we're going to talk about the three levels of application. So let's first talk about Ephesus and let's first talk about the city of Ephesus itself. The city of Ephesus was located in modern day Turkey. And it was one of the largest and most impressive cities in the ancient world. Under the Romans at the time of Paul, it was thriving. And it was probably the fourth largest city in the entire world at the time with a population estimated at 250,000. Ephesus was a leader in the ancient world. It was a political center. It was a religious center and it was a business center. It was a place to be. It really was. And at the time of the events in the New Testament, it, uh, the center of worship at Ephesus, Ephesus was for the whole world, the center of worship for the Greek goddess of fertility known as Artemis. Uh, the Romans called her Diana. And so there's all kinds of things related to that. But the Artemision, which is called the temple, which it, that means the temple of Artemis, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was four times larger than the Parthenon at Athens. And it's referred to in the Bible. Now, discoveries in archaeology have uncovered the grandeur of this ancient city. In this city, you're going to see, they've uncovered so many amazing things. The ruins of the Artemision, that temple, uh, the civic and commercial agoras are there. And agora, by the way, is a public open space used 
for assemblies and markets. There's two of them there, the commercial and the civil, right? Then there was the temple of Domitian they found. There were gymnasiums all over the place, public baths, very famous, and a very famous theater with seating of 24,000, also a very famous library. Now, today, the Turkish town of Seljuk occupies the site of ancient Ephesus, and you can go and see the ruins today. That's a little bit about the city at Ephesus, but let's talk about the church at Ephesus. Church at Ephesus was founded by the Apostle Paul and is associated not only with the ministries of just Paul, but Timothy and the Apostle John also had ministries there. Now, Paul, when you read the book of Acts, you see that he poured into the city for three years for this church here. Imagine having Paul as your pastor for three years, right? Consequently, because Paul spent three years there and built up this church, it played a significant role in the spread of early Christianity. And it's mentioned more than 20 times in the New Testament. This church, as you could imagine with Paul as the pastor, it was sound in doctrine, but it was also full of love, full of love for God and full of love for people. And it was full of the power of God. This was the place where the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 19 that God performed extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So much so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out. People that were possessed were delivered just from a handkerchief that touched Paul's body. Crazy, right? And lives were being changed by the power of the gospel. Acts 19, 18 through 20 says, Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who performed magic brought their magic books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of God was growing mightily and prevailing. This church became a spiritual powerhouse. Even witches and warlocks were burning their magical arts and renouncing their incantations. So much so at the great cost to themselves. 50,000 pieces of silver worth of books were burned when they turned their back on Satan and turned their face towards Christ. That's the power of the gospel. Changed lives. Now, after three years, Paul eventually had to leave because there was a huge disturbance caused by some of the local idol makers. They made a lot of money making idols to that goddess Artemis. You can read all about this in Acts chapter 19, verse 23 through chapter 20. But this was an amazing church. And we need to understand all that if we want to understand Jesus' letter to them. But there's one other thing that we need to know about the church at Ephesus, if we truly want to understand the letter to the church at Ephesus, and if we really want to understand what happened to Ephesus. And there's some powerful instruction for you and I in this. 
And so the thing we need to be aware of is Paul's meeting with the elders at Ephesus. This was a pivotal meeting. It's found in the book of Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. I'm just going to summarize some of this. But picture the scene. Paul has left Ephesus now because of that uprising. But he still continued his work. Now time has gone by. It's now toward the end of his third missionary journey. We know of three missionary journeys that the Apostle Paul went on that planted the seeds of the church all throughout the ancient Roman world. But Paul now at this time, he doesn't have time to go back to Ephesus because he's trying to make it back to Jerusalem by the day of Pentecost. He's on a timetable that he set for himself. But he needs to speak with the elders of the church at Ephesus. You see, he has some important things to say to them. And we need to remember the thing about Paul. He's an apostle, but Paul is also a pastor. And Paul, if anybody has a shepherd's heart besides Jesus in the Bible, it's the apostle Paul. And he wants to talk to the shepherds at Ephesus, the overseers who are going to be looking after God's flock there at Ephesus. So he stops at nearby Miletus and he calls for the elders to come and meet with him. And like I said, this meeting is very important and it's important for us to understand because it helps us understand Jesus's letter to them. Paul starts off by telling them, first off, that he knows that this is going to be their final meeting, the last time he's going to see them. So that right there made it a very serious meeting. But then he gives them a warning. Let's look at Paul's warning and instruction to the elders at Ephesus, found in Acts 20, verses 28 to 32. Paul speaking to them, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. That's Paul's message to the elders. Now imagine if you're one of those elders. This is a hugely emotional moment for you. This man, this follower of Christ, this apostle of Christ, who is really your spiritual father, he has just told you that he is never going to see you again. This is your final goodbye. And during the conversation, he tells you that there will be savage wolves that are going to come in among you, not sparing the flock. Basically, false teachers are on the way and they are going to wreak havoc in the congregation. Wolves have always been after God's sheep. That's the way it was then and it is so now. That's why we need to know the word. And so Paul charges them basically to protect the flock. Now, how would you respond if that was you? I can tell you how these elders res responded. They got serious. 
They became a strict word church and they tested everybody and anybody who wanted to be a teacher there and speak into the lives of the people of God, they had to get tested. And if they didn't meet the criteria, they didn't get to teach, period. Paul warned them, they responded, and God's people were protected. That's good news there. That's some good stuff. Now, with that as our background, let's go now fast forward back to the book of Revelation and read Jesus' letter again. This time it should make a little bit more sense to us what is happening at the church at Ephesus. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, Jesus speaking, write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Jesus has some good things to say about these folks, but then he goes on to say, but I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So you can see that from that statement from Jesus, that the elders took Paul's words seriously. They took him seriously and they guarded the flock. But in so doing, they made a tragic mistake that a lot of word centric churches make more on that in a moment. But since this is our first church, let me tell you how uh, we're going to go through each one. We're going to start, first of all, by breaking down each of the seven elements. Remember last time we talked about the seven elements of each letter that Jesus directs. Each one uh, of those letters have seven elements, and they make up what we call Jesus' template, right? His template that he uses to communicate to these churches and so we're going to talk about those seven elements and then we're going to talk about the three levels of application so let's start breaking this down now the first item or the first element in each letter is the church name in this case it is Ephesus now everything means something in these letters Ephesus means desired one or darling now we're going to see the theme of this letter from Jesus to the church is love for God. Love for God trumps service to God. Love for God trumps everything. Ephesus is God's desired one. The church is God's desired one or darling. And by the way, hopefully you know that you are God's desired one and that uh, you are God's darling. 
Okay? God doesn't just tolerate you. God is crazy about you. We need to know that deep down inside. Now, the next element that you can see, and if you have your spreadsheet, you can see it there, is Christ's title. He's identifying himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. What's happening there? Why does Jesus choose this title for himself to speak to the Ephesians? Well, we know that the lampstands represent the church, right? And so this speaks to the presence of God in the midst of his church. And the message to us is that God never wants us to do this life alone. He has sent his spirit to dwell in us and be with us. And so we need to cultivate and never neglect our relationship with the Holy Spirit. So that's setting the tone now for what he's saying to them. Next element is Jesus's commendation to them. And he has a lot of great things to to tell them they're doing a lot of things right they have good deeds hard work perseverance they are intolerant to and test false prophets uh, false apostles they endure and they have not grown weary for jesus's namesake and they hate the deeds of the nicolaitans whatever that means but whatever that means jesus also hates these deeds. We'll talk more about them in a second. So they're a hard-working word church, right? Remember the elders after speaking with Paul, they were not about to let those ravenous wolves come in and devour the flock. So they set up a culture that taught people that the word of God and work for God is supreme. I mean, it even sounds like they had systems in place to prevent false teachers and apostles to come in. They also had perseverance. They were vigilant and wouldn't quit. These are not good, but great attributes to be said of a church. If Jesus says that about our church, we'll be feeling pretty good, right? Jesus also says that they hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which he also hates. So that brings up the question, if you've read this before, you might have asked it, who are the Nicolaitans and what were their deeds? I mean, if this uh, uh, their deeds are something that Jesus hates, I want to know what they're all about so I know to avoid it, right? So, the Nicolaitans. Scholars tell us that the exact origin of the Nicolaitans is unclear. Some believe they were a group that followed the teachings of Nicholas, who was an apostate teacher who perverted grace. That's the key thing. They perverted grace and replaced liberty with license. In other words, if it feels good, do it. Jesus doesn't care about what you do anymore. Now that you're saved, do what you want, right? Sexual immorality, unethical none of that mattered because of grace right which jesus was thumbs down so others believe though that it wasn't referring to a man but it was a teaching that encouraged others to eat things sacrificed to idols during worship 
since Nikola means let us eat in Greek. Now, whichever one it was, Jesus didn't take kindly to it. So we know that Jesus doesn't take kindly to idolatry and Jesus doesn't take kindly to trampling on grace, right? As we learn when we read the book of Jude, any teaching that encourages us to abuse grace by saying, since we're under grace, we can do anything and it doesn't matter, that is actually a perversion of grace and a an abomination to God. These Ephesians hated that. And the message to us is to keep an eye on our attitude to sin, right? We should never take a laid back passive attitude towards sin in our lives. We're forgiven of all our sin and we need to walk in the light and the joy of that. But at the same time, there is a death principle associated with sin. The wages of sin our death, and so we shouldn't treat it lightly. And with God's help, we should make changes in our behavior. Beware any teaching that tells you you don't have to care about sin anymore. Next is the concern. Jesus has all those good things to say, but now he says they have left their first love. Wow. What? That must be devastating to those elders you have left your first love remember we said the theme to this letter is love for god over and over again in various ways through different scriptures jesus reiterates that he would rather have our hearts than our work amen true good works flow out of love for god these guys responded well to Paul's warning, but then fell into the danger that people who are strong in the word can fall into. If you are all word of God without the spirit of God, you get out of balance and you veer towards lovelessness. And you may have experienced this. Some of the most legalistic, mean-spirited people we will ever meet are word people who have turned their back on the Holy Spirit and therefore lose their love. They lose their love for God. They lose their love for people. They view everything through a critical lens. They view themselves critically and they view everybody else the same way. And the word says that the letter kills what the spirit makes alive. The word mixed with the relationship with the Holy Spirit should fill us with more love for God and more love for people than we've ever had in our lives. That's what the church at Ephesus had at one time and then lost. And I pray that God help us that we never lose that love for him. Amen. Now, the next element is the exhortation. Jesus just doesn't leave you hanging. He gives you the concern, but he, he doesn't leave you to just try and figure it out on your own. He tells them what they need to do. And also, as a good father, lets them know the consequences if they don't. So first he tells them they need to remember. Everybody say remember, right? Remember where they used to be in regards to their relationship with him. Do you remember when Jesus first got a hold of your heart and your life? Do you remember the passion and the love that you had for him and that the willingness you had to lay down everything to follow him and the joy that you had? Because of what he did for you. 
We don't ever want to forget that. So Jesus tells them, remember. Remember what that was like. And then he says, then they need to repent. Again, beware any teaching in Christian circles that tells you that now that you're saved, you no longer have to repent about anything. Because here's Jesus in the book of Revelation talking to his church about the need to repent. Repentance is one of the greatest gifts that God has ever given mankind. We have the ability to take those things that grieve his heart and to change our minds about them once we hear the truth from the word of God and then change our direction and be cleansed as if it never even happened. The warning is that if they don't go back, they will cease to exist as a church. And this is kind of uh, goes without saying, because without the power of the spirit, a church cannot continue to be a living church. The building can still be there, but there will not be any life there. That's a sober warning. And for individuals, it's not saying that you'll lose your salvation if you lose your love for God, but you will lose your joy which is a miserable place to be. If you're a follower of Christ, one of your birthrights is joy. So we need to keep our love for Christ alive, and we do that by cultivating our relationship with the Holy Spirit who makes the things of Christ alive and gives us the love of God shed abroad in our hearts, right? And now element six of this letter. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This phrase is used at least 21 times by Jesus in the Bibles, if you include the Gospels and the book of Revelation. And what we should do whenever we see this phrase, we, we should understand this is an invitation to pause, meditate, consider, and pray about what has either just been said or what he's about to say. In other words, don't just rush past this, Jesus is saying. Stop and listen. Tune your spiritual ears. What is the message to me personally? What is the Holy Spirit saying to me? When he says, he who has an ear, let him hear, that word hear doesn't mean to just listen. It means to listen and heed. Listen and take action. Now, the seventh element is the promise to the overcomer. Jesus wants us to win. Amen. He's an overcomer. He overcame all things. In him, we have already overcome death, hell, and the grave. But now in this life, we've got this baggage and this junk that we need to work through that Jesus wants us to overcome. And he's so good, he cannot give us some direction without giving us a promise. And so in every letter, we see this promise to the overcomer. In this case, Jesus promises that they will get to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Remember we said that the rest of the Bible interprets revelation. What is the tree of life and where is the paradise of God? Well, if you remember, the tree of life was in paradise in Eden. So this is a reference to the garden of Eden. The tree of life was what Adam and Eve were supposed to eat. So they would live forever, but God prevented them from eating after they fell because he didn't want them to live forever in their fallen state. Here he's reminding them 
that their future with him, they're going to be living forever with him in their new glorified body. Now let's look at the three levels of application. Level one we said was the local. That means that the message to the literal church at Ephesus. And it was just twofold. Keep doing what you were doing as far as protecting yourselves from the false teachers. But two, fall back in love with Jesus. Very simple. And yet for some reason it gets hard sometimes. Now we have no record if the church at Ephesus repented. But we can tell you that today, that area, there's no church there. And Turkey itself has a very small Christian population. The lampstands have been put out. Level two, the universal level. That means every church past, present, and future would do well to examine itself to make sure that it really is walking in both love and truth. These two are not contradictory to each other. Love for God and love for people, but never compromising the truth. Level three, personal. This is where we do some healthy self-examination, where we ask ourselves, how's my love walk right now? Am I drifting? How's my love for Christ? What can I do right now to keep the fire burning? Or if the fire's going out, what can I do to stoke that fire? Fall back in love with Jesus. Start with confessing and admitting it, right? And then I always say this because we talk this about kids. Children spell love, T-I-M-E. Everybody spells love, T-I-M-E. And if we want to cultivate our love relationship with Jesus, we need to start making more time for him. Amen? That's the key there. Now, moving on. Next church, the church at Smyrna. What do you think? We got time to keep going? 35 minutes into it. Might as well just keep rolling. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8. Two eleven, church at Smyrna, Jesus talking. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, say this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death. Everybody say, be faithful. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. All these seven letters are interesting, but this church to me, it's really fascinating because it is one of only two of the seven churches that Jesus doesn't have not one concern about them. Not one thing for them to repent from. The church of Philadelphia also 
fits this. All the other churches, Jesus tells them to repent. But none of the others, just these two. So right away, our ears should be open even a little bit more. What was it about these believers that Jesus didn't have anything for them to change? Well, that'll be unfolded when we break down the seven elements. Church name is Smyrna. Like I said, everything, even the name, means something. The city of Smyrna is still in existence in our day. It has a Turkish name called Izmir, but it is the same city. It has been continuously inhabited from the time it was founded. Smyrna is the martyr church. That's the theme of this. Ephesus was the love for God church. This is the martyr church, the church that suffered martyrdom for Christ. Now watch this. The word Smyrna means myrrh and carries the meaning of suffering. Myrrh is a bitter gum and a costly perfume that comes from a, a shrub or tree in Arabia and Ethiopia. And in the Bible, it was an ingredient in perfume. It was an ingredient in the holy anointing oil used by the priests in the tabernacle and the temple. In the book of Esther, it was used for the purification of the women involved as candidates in the selection process to become queen of the Persian Empire. And, of course, you know this last reference, it was used for embalming. And when Jesus was born, the Magi brought him gold, which spoke to his royalty and his deity. They brought him frankincense, which spoke to his priesthood. And his deity, but they also brought him myrrh, which spoke of his suffering and death. As a matter of fact, we see in John 19, 39, that Nicodemus brings a mixture of myrrh and aloes to prepare Christ's body for burial. So when you think of the letter to Ephesus, you should think love and passion for God. But when you think of the letter to Smyrna, the theme is persecution and suffering next thing title of christ the first and the last who was dead and has come to life this title is very telling in that it goes right along with the theme of this letter by telling them he is the first and the last jesus is telling them that although there would the their world seems out of control sound familiar he is in control he is the first and the last. He was there before it all began, and he will be there when it is all said and done. Very comforting to these people who are under severe persecution, and very comforting to us right now. We have just gone through, kind of coming on the tail end of this pan global pandemic, and now we go right from that into a chaotic time stoked by racism and people trying to divide us, right? It's comforting to us to know that Jesus is the first and the last. And as long as we're holding his hand, he's going to carry us through it. Amen? And then notice he says that he was dead and has come to life. These believers are under persecution by refusing to do the required emperor worship ceremony 
where they pinched some incense to Caesar, they were under threat of death. Death hung over their head. Jesus, in essence, is saying, I've been there, but please know I died, but I didn't stay dead. I was dead, but I came back to life. And if they do the same thing to you that they did to me, the same thing will happen to you that happened to me. You will live again. Now the commendation. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blessed, that's just a word for the prosperity preachers, right? Smyrna was not rich materialistically. However, in Jesus' eyes, they were rich. He says, I know the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. They are in tribulation, which means literally pressing or pressure. And metaphorically, it means oppression and affliction. They are in tribulation, and it's not just from the Roman Empire, as we know, but Jesus refers to those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. This is in reference to legalistic Jewish leaders of that day who tried to say that to be saved, you had to meet all the requirements of the Mosaic law in addition to faith in Christ. I'll just tell you that when Jesus really gets a hold of you and the Holy Spirit fills you and you start having the joy of the Lord and you start walking around in the joy and the power of God, it's going to stir up religious devils. Amen. It's going to stir up uh, people who don't like to see that kind of joy. You see, they knew they were saved by grace through faith alone. And they were persecuted by those who thought they were blaspheming. Jesus corrects them by saying it's them that are blaspheming. And not only that, but they are not part of his synagogue, but they're part of the synagogue of Satan. Ouch. How'd you like Jesus to call your church, church of Satan, right? That's what he's saying there about those that were coming against these precious people at Smyrna. Now it goes, if we're following our template, to the concern. But again, this letter is remarkable in that it is one of the only two where Jesus has no concern, no correction for them. If this were a job eval, they would have aced it. They would have got a 100%. Persecution and trials have the ability to purify us like nothing else. So I just want to encourage you, if you're going through the fire of affliction right now, whether it is through persecution or just a fiery trial that you're going through, let that just continue to drive you to God and and to uh, lean on him and draw on him because these fires of affliction helps us uh, feel our need for God more acutely. And if we respond to that, our focus returns. And as we cry out to him and seek him, the petty things of this world seem to fall away. These people had nothing. And yet Jesus said they are rich. They had everything. I bet the believers at Smyrna had a joy that didn't make sense to onlookers. All they had was Jesus, and they had found him to be more than enough. Now, 
the exhortation, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And so we have to talk now for a second about persecution. It's something uh, that we in the West and 20th century, 21st century Christians haven't had to deal with a lot. But the truth of the matter is persecution has been a very common experience for much of the church for most of its history. Like I said, we're living in Western civilization. We've been uniquely buffered from this phenomenon. Why? Because our founding fathers built into our founding documents this incredible thing called freedom of worship. No longer would the state have the right to dictate to whom and how a person should worship. Man was created by God to be a free moral agent, and so he had the freedom to choose good and bad, right and wrong, for better or for worse. And so we are a society that has been blessed because of this. But as you know, uh, it seems that those foundations are being shaken. There are those who would like to rid our founding documents of those words and rid our founding fathers of their credibility so they can dismantle what they put together. So we have that on the horizon here in the United States. But let's look at it globally. Persecution is exploding globally. The 20th century was brutal, but the 21st century has been already far worse. Those storm clouds of persecution may be coming to the United States, but they're already there for a lot of our brothers and sisters around the world. Now Jesus says, do not fear. Over and over again, he tells us not to fear. In this case, suffering is imminent. And he says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. He is preparing them to hang on because it's about to get bad. He says the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. Remember, Jesus told Peter that Satan wanted to sift him like wheat. But he tells them to be faithful no matter what. Be faithful even unto death, and he will give them the crown of life. That's an important word for us right now as 21st century Christians in the United States. Be faithful. We have a lot of things going on. And what we have going on within the body of Christ is... A lot of people are feeling the heat of standing with Jesus, standing with his word. And there are people now who, rather than have the stigma of being somebody, one of those people who believes everything in the Bible, they have begun to renounce their faith in Christ. They're not being faithful. They're being swept away. We need to pray for them. We need to pray for this movement that's happening within even evangelical circles that people will wake up and say and realize what's happening. They're being swept away. They're being swept away from Jesus.
He says, be faithful even unto death, and he will give them the crown of life. And then, of course, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, a moment to ponder, contemplate, make decisions, and prepare. And then the overcomer's promise. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. The second death is a reference to what happens after the great white throne judgment. Many of these believers would become martyrs. There was a great persecution that got unleashed under Emperor Domitian. But Jesus is giving them perspective. They who knew and understood death better than most would never have to fear it again. Now notice it says that he will give them the crown of life. Jesus wants them as well as us to know that he's a rewarder. In the big scheme of things, it's all going to be worth it. Now, let's go ahead and look at three levels of application as I wrap this up. Local, we've talked a lot about this already. Smyrna, a real church in Turkey in the first century, was under severe persecution for following Jesus. Level of application number two, universal. Every church throughout history, including ours, needs to be prepared to face the stigma of being a follower of light in a dark world. Persecution is a reality that needs to be talked about so that we could prepare ourselves. Even if we don't go through the great tribulation, we should still be ready for persecution. If we do go through the tribulation, we better be prepared for persecution, right? And so... We need to talk about persecution and about preparing just our minds that we're going to stick with Jesus. That's what it comes down to. There could come a moment where we're threatened. What are we going to do in that moment? It's important for every believer to kind of role play that. Now, the personal level of application. I think I was just kind of touching on that. The personal application is clear. Check our devotion level, our faithfulness level. And if it's lacking, we need to build that up. We need to ask ourselves, are we willing to stick with Jesus if following him makes life really hard on us? That's a question we all need to answer. We also need to look at what it says in Hebrews 13, 3 about this. It tells us, continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Many of our brothers and sisters around the globe are suffering for the name of Jesus. And so we need to build into our walk with Christ ways to remember them, pray for them, and support them. Amen? Whew, that, my friends, that takes us to the end of our study tonight. So there's a lot of stuff there, powerful stuff tonight. Um, just to reinforce, so far we've gone through two letters to two churches. And the takeaways have been, number one, stay true to the Bible. Stick with the word. Number two, never lose your first love in the process, right?
Two, never lose your first love in the process, though. Keep your love for Jesus strong. Three, be prepared to remain faithful to Jesus even if persecution breaks out. And number four, don't forget your brothers and sisters that are suffering. Let's pray. God, thank you again. I just pray right now a blessing over each person here. And God, I pray that those four things, God, would be cemented in us, Jesus. That we would have a love for your word and that we would stick with it, God, and that we would protect ourselves from false teaching. But God, we would also keep our love for our brothers and sisters and our fellow man and our love for you strong. God, I pray that we would Remain faithful even when it's hostile, God. God, I pray that we would steal our minds even now and prepare ourselves that no matter what happens, though all depart from you, God, by your grace, we will hold on to you. And then number four, God, forgive us for not remembering and not supporting our brothers and sisters around the globe. Help us to build into our prayer time and our devotional time and our giving time um, ways to remember them. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, that's all I got. Until next time, may God richly, I'm getting tired, may God richly bless you and yours. Have a great night.